This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, and yep, it's our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the good doctor is back in the house, Dr. Nirvan Mahati. How are you, mate? Good, man. How are you? I'm, I'm good, although I'm a little bit discombobulated, mate. We're recording this on a Friday morning, which is not something we usually do, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to remember it's Friday, not Thursday. Other than that, I think I'm okay. The sun's out. Uh, it's actually dry, mate. It's been a weird summer, hasn't it, on the east coast of Australia? It has been a really, really strange. The sun's out, and that's actually kind of remarkable. Over the last couple of weeks, it's been an overcast, rainy kind of February so far. That is so true. Yeah, it's actually, I, I think I saw a little bit of frost this morning, so who oh, knows? There you go. Oh, don't tell me that. Oh, <laughs> it's been overcast. You know, last summer was a terrible one with lots of fires and other stuff. I, I, I'm not complaining in the slightest. That one I repeated last summer, but gee, a couple more, you know, nicer days would have been would have been okay. I know it's not the same everywhere in the country. We won't spend too long on it. No one wants to hear our two blokes rant about their own weather when there's different weather everywhere else. So whatever weather you are having, we hope you're having a, a good weekend. Mate, let's uh, let's get on with the questions. I, I quite like Tim's question. Uh, he starts with, good morning, fellow fools. Excellent food for thought in today's S-S-B-R-B-M-E is, uh, is what he appreciates. And, uh, and I love a good <laughs> acronym, Doc. I love a good acronym. I, I promise it's on Friday, so I'm giving, delivering it up front. Apparently, it is the still special but regular bonus mailbag edition. The SSBRBME. That might be our new, uh, our new tag tagline. I might uh, the uh, podcast description, see if, it, see if people can work it out. Anyway, mm. he says, thank you, particularly the rel- relative merits of direct investing in companies versus ETFs. And Ivan was favourable to finding the best in breed in an industry. And I was curious to know. Here's a, a good thought starter for us first thing, mate. I hope you had a, a coffee this morning. If you were restricted to the ASX, what three sectors would you expect to provide the best returns going forward? Five plus years, so not just this year, next year, or the year after. Five plus years, and what would be your best in breed pick in each sector? Hang in for your next episode already, Tim. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to go to uh, best pick in each sector, mate. But uh, I'm going to. Uh, do you have? If you, if you have three, give me three. Otherwise, I thought we might go tic tac. We go back and forward and try and um, try, try and give ourselves uh, some, some breathing space and thinking space as we go through this one. This is. I think. I think. Well, I can. I can. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I wish I had looked at this question beforehand. This, this is a. Um, this is a really, really good hey? question. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question. So I'll preface by saying that you know, uh, like sector based hunting may or may not be a good idea, right? Because the best idea could be out of the sector, um, right? And then there'll be there'll be like, you know, these huge, huge successes, like say Afterpay, which, you know, what sector would you put it on, right? Is it in the credit sector? Is it in the technology sector? Uh, is it in the financial services sector? Um, is it in the banking sector, right? So yeah, there's yeah. that issue always. Um, now, if you still want to go sector hunting, which, you know, and which we all like kind of do, right, to some yeah, extent, yeah. you know, we have our favorite things that we look at. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a way to sort of um, uh, find things, right? So I'd still say tech uh, yeah. and biotech. When I'm, when I'm saying Ooh. biotech, I mean, I mostly mean uh, medical devices, mm-hmm. not pharmaceuticals or, you know, like um, drugs, okay. because it's much harder with drugs, actually, because, you know, the pipeline for getting things, you know, from from the mice experiments to, you know, actually first doing experiments, you know, synthetically or using uh, simulation and then to doing mice experiments and then to doing actual experiments with human beings. Uh, and they're really experiments, right, um, to actually getting approval. Uh, that's a really long part, so it's very difficult. So th- those are two sectors, I would say. Um, in terms of, uh, actually, it's a financial technology, fintech, as a third sector. So he okay, wanted three there. Uh, fintech, te- tech, medtech, and fintech. Is there, is there a thing? Yeah, tech, tech, <laughs> medtech. <laughs> there we go. Scott makes up a good terminology. You can hashtag it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> um, if I don't have a hashtag, mate, does it even exist, is the question I'm asking these days. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, okay, so fintech, I think it's interesting. Well, I think fintech is interesting and probably the easiest one of the lot because fintech, uh, you know, we ride a few different uh, uh, trains. One of the easiest trains to ride is basically just conversion of things to electronic payments and mm. payment solutions, right? So if I had to pick a pick there, I'd say something like EML payments, uh, and these are all ASX specific. Um, you know, EM, EML payments would be one. I think that has a very good potential. It has been a, it's, it's been actually a good winner over the past, say, you know, whenever it listed, I think 2012 or something like that since then. Um, and, and I think it can be a good winner going forward. Um, in the tech space, we've got, you know, we've got a sort of 
burgeoning tech space here in the ASX. So uh, if you want something small, uh, you know, one company that I think right now is really executing really well is uh, Big Tin Can. Um, relatively niche uh, area, but the niche itself is still pretty big. So if they're sales enablement, they basically help sales become better, more efficient, you know, cloud-based, mobile-based, and things like that. They're growing pretty quickly. So if they can maintain that sort of rate, then that's that's a good company to look at. MedTech uh, is interesting. Now, like we've got some big MedTechs, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got things like uh, Cochlear, ResMed, and CSL. Those are pretty big, and I think many of them actually can continue doing, you know, notwithstanding my comments about CSL's valuations. Um, I think, you know, you you could over longish periods of time expect them to still be market beating. Um, and now if I had to pick something, I think Nanosonics that we talked about on Friday actually could be an interesting pick, right? It's uh, it's still early days. It's higher risk definitely compared to say a resume. Um, but I think I'd say something like Nanosonics um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a good opportunity, I think. Uh, if I had to pick something small, uh, well, I'll just stick with Nanosonics. I think Nanosonics is, is pretty good. That is awesome. And Tim, there you go. Doc, I had no warning of that question. I was giving you an absolutely thorough and super exciting answer. So well done, mate. Thank you. Um, that, was, that was a great answer. Tim, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a go at mine. Um, I've had an extra 30 seconds to think about it while Doc was talking, so I, I got to cheat. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, as, as the police say, reject the hypothesis of the question or, uh, or whatever they say, um, but I'm going to answer it slightly differently. So if I'm going to look for sectors, I'm not going to I'm not going to limit myself to a traditional defined kind of market categories. I'm going to go with three different things. And as I did have some extra thinking time while Doc was talking, so did she. First thing I'm going to talk about is if I was going to look for market being long-term and do and I, by the way, I agree completely with Doc. I, I don't actually search by sector at all. Although as, as Doc says, what you find generally speaking is companies that share attributes that you like tend to then correlate to certain industries. So for example, recurring revenue or the ability to scale quickly and inexpensively tend to be tech slash SaaS companies, right? So to some degree, the things that you tend to like, the attributes you tend to like tend to be common to certain industries. So ironically, while you might do a bottom up or maybe even a side in, I just made up that phrase, Doc, um, the, you know, think about the style or the business model, you, you kind of end up in the same place. So first thing I'm going to say, I'm going to say if I want to beat the market over five plus years, I'm going to look outside the biggest companies. So I'm going to look for smaller mid caps. I'm going to look for companies with growth potential. The market's not necessarily spending too much time paying attention to, uh, but have long-term growth trends. That's not going to start with tech, by the way. I'll get there. But I'm going to say Australian Ethical in the small and mid-cap space. Australian Ethical has the ability to scale meaningfully as it grows funds under management. Um, the funds management businesses that are growing businesses scale almost as well as SaaS companies because they just you don't need anybody else, right? If you're running a, I mean, I guess at some point, if you're running a billion dollars versus a trillion dollars, I guess you might have got an extra couple of staff. But gee, if you're you know increasing the, the amount of money you're, you're managing by that much, you can afford to put a few more staff on the scale. Benefits still work fantastically well. Now, um, by the way, uh, Australia Ethical isn't even close to a billion, let alone a trillion. So as it grows funds under management, it shouldn't need to add too many people to the investing staff. It shouldn't need to add too many people to the marketing team. It shouldn't add to, and need to add too many people to regulatory and compliance. So um, I think it'll keep growing because the trend of ethical investing is continuing. And I think it's a business, I've talked about it before, I own shares in it. Um, it's smaller mid cap, I'd go Australian ethical. Second thing I thought about was, and again, Doc, you've talked about this, so, but I kind of thought about SaaS as an idea um, for reasons that we've talked about many, many, many times. If you haven't, um, if you're not familiar with that, go back to some of our past episodes. You'll hear plenty of that, Doc, as a SaaS expert. Um, I went for RPM Global, though, mate, in a, in a kind of a two-phase, two-punch strategy here. RPM Global is a mining services software company, and it's moving from perpetual licensing, i.e. pay me one off. And yeah, maybe pay me a license fee, but pay me one off, and then you know, you'll know you never have to pay me again unless you want to buy something else, to a recurring revenue model, which is, hey, pay me every month or every year. I'll keep giving you the best version of what I've got. It'll be great. Um, that's a really attractive transition for it to be making, and it's in the software as a service space, which is so you know that you're getting, if this is a pure software as a service business, it'll probably be attractive enough to recommend anyway, but you're getting it before it becomes fully that and the market's recognizing that. So RPM Global, AEF is the code. Uh, sorry, AEF is the code for Australian Ethical. RPM Global, R-U-L is the code. Uh, and then I'm going to go e-commerce, mate. I, I know you're not a huge retail fan. I'm a bit more of a retail fan than you are. And I think there is still very early days for some of the e-commerce players here in Australia. I've talked about others before this time. I'm going to talk about Temple and Webster. Um, it is leading the charge for uh, online furniture sales. Uh, I've said before, it's a remarkable time in our lives when we are um, looking at um, buying furniture online. It's something I never thought we'd do five years ago, frankly, maybe, yeah, probably even five years ago. Um, 
the, the ability to shop online, the comfort with it, the, um, the, the, the quality of the websites, the photos, the ability to simply look at something and, and kind of see it in your own home. And that'll only improve, by the way, as things like augmented and virtual reality take over. So um, Temple Webster, I think, is at the forefront of that. I think the Australian businesses, they're not going to be Amazon, so don't don't overdo the, the analogy, but there are still very early days, I think, in that growth story. And yes, some of the online, some of the offline retailers will make the transition online successfully, but others that are pure plays like Temple and Webster, TPW, I think is uh, is a good way to start. Well, Doc, any more reflections? We just move straight on from there. Oh, that's, no, that's a fantastic list. Cool, cool. Uh, Tim has an idea for you, though. By the way, Doc, uh, he sent sent a follow up. He just said, uh, "Thank you for discussing the question uh, and your unbridled enthusiasm for all things finance." With the now predictable spike in price when EO Extreme Opportunity Recs are released. I was thinking it might make more sense to create an equal weight ETF instead. That way, Nearbarn and Kevin could create a portfolio of recommendations and buy companies without the weight of FOMO capital driving up the price. What are your thoughts, Doc? Are we going to launch a uh, an EO ETF anytime soon? No. I don't know. We haven't talked about it, at least. <laughs> but, you know, like, I mean, that's an interesting idea um, and maybe a workaround for, uh, uh, but that's a different business, right? ETFs are a completely different business. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I like that, too. Yeah, it's a great idea. And, and what's you know what I think is interesting about this one, Doc, actually, just in, just as a slight editorial, but also sort of a reflection on that is the idea of equal weight. And I think that's to some degree, we've talked about equal weight ETFs before, not obviously our own ETFs, but you know, equal weight versus market cap weighted ETFs. And I think, you know, the, the reality is the way that um, Doc and Kevin pick stocks in EO, the way we do it, share advisor and others, um, we are picking effectively equal weight recommendations, right? And that's something that I, I think ETF, microweight ETFs are great. If you want to just buy an index fund and, and go with Vanguard, knock yourself out. But just the very idea of equal weighting an investment approach rather than market weighting it, if you're right and if you if you do a good job, it does kind of favor the individual investor, right? Because you're getting, you know, to the extent the small companies grow faster than the big ones. And by the way, in the US in the last couple of years, the big ones have outgrown the small ones. So this doesn't always work mathematically. But then again, you could have chosen those big ones in an equal weight idea. So I guess my, my broad thought is if, if as you're buying, I actually think the individual investor is benefited from, as long as you're doing it well and picking quality businesses, some sort of, we don't always have to buy equal weight, of course, but just that idea of putting money to work regularly in individual ideas, I think actually favours the investor who's investing in businesses that are growing, not necessarily hyper growth companies, so that, that definitely is the case, but just generally, if you can find a portfolio of companies that are growing on average faster than the market, you're buying them in roughly equal weight portions or at least, you know, not not market weight. Um, I don't know, I think I just think that's kind of an inbuilt advantage for us individual investors, mate. Oh, I think I, I, I think I agree. Yeah, like as I've always said, that you know, start like with a one percent position. Like whenever I start a position, like you know, start it at a one percent position. Maybe increase it over time to like you know. And don't don't think that if it is market cap is larger or smaller, that really should only have a secondary, probably you know, a tertiary impact on your decision as to how you exactly. size it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So size independent, independent. I just sizing should be really based on uh, what you think is the perceived potential mm. upside, right? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really, that's a whole different point. And I guess and that's what we do, right? With the portfolio service, our own portfolios, that's exactly what we do. We add, we add to positions that we expect to be even better. That That's how, you know, if you're adding money, if you're buying something new or buying something you already own, each time we are actually kind of adding money to the to our best ideas, as long as, you know, sometimes we don't if, if the portfolio is already too big in a certain position or for other reasons. But that's exactly the point. Yeah, we're always doing reverse market weight in some senses because the ones that are going to be the big companies of tomorrow, when the, you know, we, we had um, David Gardner come to a, a Motley Fool Platinum event, uh, one of our, our capstone service here at the Motley Fool. And, and he was talking about Amazon. He said, you know, he, he tells a story, which is a wonderful story, um, about going up to Jeff Bezos at a function and saying he, David thought he had the second lowest cost base in Amazon. His return is about a thousand times his money. Um, you're not going to get that if you're market weighting. <laughs> you know, it's a, and overweighting that position relative to everything else he owned um, was, a, was a stupendously great idea. So just, just some thoughts there. Um, mate, question from Jackson. Hey, team. I'm a newbie to the podcast and to the world of trading and investment. Just quickly, I want to thank you for the insight you provide. Welcome, Jackson. Thank you for joining in. Uh, we will we will probably humbly differentiate investing and trading. We're not traders at Motley Fool. We are investors, uh, but uh, but I understand the, the point. Uh, but the reason I make the point is not to be a smart aleck, Jackson, but just to tell you there are plenty of people out there who will want you to trade because they make money. Your broker will want you to trade because you make money. Um, there's plenty of reasons to get in and out of stocks, the market, uh, the papers, the social media goes nuts with this sort of stuff. Uh, we would say, I know they feel like they're the same word, um, but to the extent that investing is about long-term buy to hold versus trading being in, out, in, out, in, out, making the transactions. If you can think yourself as an, as an investor first, uh, I think you'll be a, uh, you'll, you'll be much better off. Anyway, he says, I like this question, Doc. This is one we I, I like answering questions for people who are new because it's a really nice way to re 
examine our, our thoughts and, and frankly address some of the issues. So he says, is trading on the stock market a zero-sum game? Let me explain. If we assume the market will hypothetically write 8% a year on average and your portfolio has made more than 8%, does that mean someone or something must have a position that is less than 8% in order to balance your position? In my head, for every stock traded, there is a buyer and a seller. And if you buy low and sell high, others must be selling low and buying high to make up the average market growth. If so, does this pose the ethical question of, if I am making money above the average market growth, is that money coming out of other people's pockets? Jackson, love the question, just the kind of market dynamic idea. I'm going to throw this to you, mate, first, because uh, you get the hard questions. <laughs> is, is Jackson stealing money from other people if he, if he beats well, the market? Well, this, this, this is an interesting idea. Here's another way I'll uh, put this, right? So let's say mm -hmm. I bought Apple shares at IPO and I bought them at 20 cents. Yes. Then I held them, held them, held them, held them, held them, and I sold them to Jackson at $50. Yep. I still made fantastic returns on on that on that holding. Yes. Jackson bought at fifty, uh, and he held, 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 held. <laughs> he sold it sold it at one hundred. Mm -hmm. So Jackson made money. Also, mm -hmm. I made maybe I made more than Jackson. <laughs> Jackson right. yes, also, yes, yes. but Jackson also made money. Correct. And then Jackson sold it, and maybe somebody else is going to buy it at one hundred. And then if they hold, 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 hold. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're also going to be, so it's not, so the market is not zero sum in that sense, because people's time horizons can be completely different. Uh, what the, the average dynamic, I mean, that's probably more, that's probably true because we know that, you know, a large percentage, for example, of funds um, don't beat the market. Yeah. Let's say like something like 80% or something like that don't beat the market. 80% have subpar or something like that. Some, some large number has subpar performance. Uh, typically, you you know, when you have an average, like say, eight percent return, we also know that those returns are going to be caused you know, coming from a small percentage mm. of the companies listed in the market. Right, right, right. Right. So there's that, and then we know that you know, for the average to be that, of course, you know, some companies have to do well, some companies have to do poorly. We know that a large number mm -hmm. of people are doing poorly. So. Um, yeah, but you, it's. I mean, that is all mathematically true. But again, it's not necessarily that you're stealing. Mm. Uh, it's not like there's money being stolen from anyone, for the lack of a better word, because um, you know people could decide to change their time horizon. I mean, the single biggest thing that people would just do is change their time horizon of holding, right? Instead of holding things for like a couple of months or you know half a year and then trading in and out because <laughs> you know the market is freaking out like you know yesterday so we or today and you're gonna freak out and you're gonna sell so it, 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 yeah so I think I mean the answer to everything is is no but yes on average it's true that if he's getting eight percent above eight percent somebody's getting below eight percent I mean that's also you know but that that's a known fact. Hmm. I like that. This is Jack. It's a really, and it's a fantastic question as you start to grapple with what's going on here. Doc is dead right. There is so there's there's time. Who makes money over what time frame between, as you say, Doc IPO and and today? And there might be a dozen holders during that period, all of whom make money. So it's not zero sum, but it is average zero average, if you like, or, or you know, for one winner, someone has to at least not lose lose, but you know, if if the average is eight, someone makes ten, someone's going to make six. Right now. There's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of mass that goes behind this. So the first thing is that's not actually true because um, you have market weighting. So for example, if BHP goes up one percent, that's that's more than if Australian ethical goes up probably a hundred percent. I suppose I imagine that BHP is hundred times the size of Australian ethical. So you know even if if one company goes up, the other company have to lose. Well, it depends on the market weighting. Uh, so there's that. Um, so the individual companies that you own, as Doc says, probably add more than the individual investors. Uh, the market itself does eight, but the market doesn't do eight because I do six and Doc does ten. Although that's also possible. It does eight because BHP does six and Australian Ethical does 10 and, you know, something else does, you know, four, four and a half or something else does 25. And, and so those averages are kind of, you know, yes, by definition, the average only exists because some do more and some do less. That's how, that's what an average is. Um, so that's absolutely true. If you think about playing that through though, I think what I'd say is the stocks will do what the stocks will do and the investors will do what the investors will do. And this is not to dodge the ethical question. It's to say that if you and I just simply exited the market, the returns would be what the returns would be. I'm not adding enough buying pressure or selling pressure to change any share price over any meaningful length of time, nor are you, nor is Doc, uh, nor is anybody. Even, even at the entire podcast group, if we went and bought the same stock a la GameStop tomorrow, we could make some short-term movements happen, right? But over months and years, the, the chance we can actually meaningfully you know, impact and, and therefore, from an ethical perspective, be responsible for 
that sort of stuff is 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 minimal. It does, you know, to some degree, yeah. The, the you know, it, we if, if we're trying to buy buy winning stocks, market beating stocks, we're trying to avoid the ones that lose, and someone has to hold those losing stocks by definition. And so that's absolutely true. Uh, but the market will do what the market will do without us, mate. So I think I get your point. I think there is a broader ethical question about, you know, how do we get more people investing, for example, or how do we teach more people to invest? Um, but over time, if we all did better, we'd all get back to the average anyway. And so the average earned by the market is still the average. It's a competitive space. It's not, you know, let's let's be honest, this is a market. This is a capitalist market. Um, they are free floating prices by definition. The only way to avoid that would be to say every stock's priced 100 bucks. Every stock may only go up by 8% a year. Um, and that would be a really, really terrible outcome because the markets would stop working. Uh, capital wouldn't flow to places that it's useful. And frankly, the doc's one about Apple. You know, does Apple, is Apple a success? Probably a bad example, actually. Apple probably is internally funded, so it's probably a bad example. But generally speaking, companies that need to come to the market for cash, Afterpay raised money on Thursday, right? And it raised money to try and grow. And it raised money at a share price people were prepared to pay because they expect more in the future. And if Afterpay uses that money wisely and manages to grow even better, then it, that's how the that's how the markets are supposed to work. And as, at some level, without that mechanism, um, as unequal as it might be, I think it's one of those things where this is a this is a growing the pie scenario rather than a splitting the pie scenario. And that, you know, I don't make apologies for that. I'm not trying to excuse the ethical consideration. There is a real issue about you know how do we feel about people losing. Um, but if that's the game we're playing and, and that game is pie growing, frankly, for those people who are losing, it's time to either leave the game or or change what they're doing. And I think that's. That's you know if if we if look if the market works so well we all get the average then great that's that's a fantastic problem to have um, but to get there uh, it, the, the reality is there simply there's a market every day like for houses if you sell your house someone else buys it uh, you know you're going to make more or make less that's just kind of life wages same thing if you're working for a high paid job and someone else working for a low paid job um, it, it, it's kind of uncomfortable for some and I absolutely get it but it kind of just is the market and is the market and is the market anything else on that dog I have nothing to add. Beautiful. Question from Matt. Hey, Scott and Doc. I've just started listening to the podcast and so far, so good. That's a good start. Keep up the bants. He says B A N T S. I assume that's, is that cool kids speak for banter? I he looks bants like it. Banter. Bants. All right, there we go. We'll keep bants. up the bants, Doc. Uh, thank you, Matt. <laughs> he also has a surname, which is a which is a famous surname. So he just says, firstly, I'm not related in case you were wondering, and I won't give up your surname because if I do that, I'll give uh. you his first and surname. But uh, Doc, you can see that. It's a, it's a, it's a politician's surname. He's just making it clear the point that uh, he's, not, he's not related. All right. He says, I've got a couple of questions. First, I started investing in March 2020. I, can I tell you, mate, I'm, I'm envious of people who are young and I'm envious of people who happen to start investing in March and April 2020 because they have had a spectacular last 12 months. It's been, it was a wonderful time to get started. So well done, Matt. Congratulations. Uh, he says, I'm looking to expand my portfolio to include international markets. I've been looking into eToro as a broker and they have the ability to copy other traders' investments. Is this something you would recommend for an inexperienced investor or would you suggest steering clear? Doc, do you want to just copy what's happening on eToro or do you want to make your own calls? Uh, so I don't know much about eToro. I've seen the ad. I've, I've browsed the website, um, but I have no personal experience with uh, eToro. So I, you know, I'll, I'll say investigate and then decide what's good for you, right? Uh, I think that's the best I can do. In terms of, um, yeah, his, uh, his other part of the question, which is about... Um, you know, looking at other people's trades and trying to sort of replicate those trades. That, that part, of, you know, I'm not so sh sure about, you know, you need to, I mean, it's good to see other people's trades, but, you know, to to execute on other people's trade, you need to have the experience to understand what those trades are, right? Because everything, context is actually very important, right? Some people are making certain trades with certain context. If you don't have that context, you're just copying the trade. You don't know actually, if, especially if they're trades, right? People fold the trades yeah. because something happened or because some condition that they had in their mind was fulfilled. But if you don't know what those conditions are, then you won't be able to you know, um, fold that trade. So copying in general uh, without understanding context can be, copying is, <laughs> as I like to say, Copying in investing is not, you know, you should always copy great ideas, uh, <laughs> but you have to ascertain that they're great by yourself and then you can copy and there's no shame in copying it um, because great ideas are truly far, <laughs> you know, true, truly great. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I have no shame in copying. If, if Scott has a good idea, I'm going to copy it because not copying it is just if, losing if, money. If it's, the, if it's the right word, mate, very rare, but occasionally maybe possible I might have one. Well, well, it's, one. Well, it's, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you've got to, you've got to copy it. Uh, no. you know, not 
copying it is basically just saying I don't I don't love money. So, uh, but yeah. So with all those caveats, you know, you can copy other people's trades can be good, but know what you're doing is very important. I love that. I think that's really it's a great. Like I'm not going to comment on Toro either. I have no interest in, in talking about their business necessarily. Not that it's good or bad. Just I wouldn't do it. Um, I look. I, here's the here's the thing. I think you know what I love about the question from Matt Doc is that it's it's the right question. It's and it's kind of it, it's it's the answer is always half yes. Because as you rightly say, whether I'm copying, if I copy your extreme opportunities trades, I'll be doing really, really well. You're beating the market. You're doing well. If I just go, I mean, that's what we ask our members to do, right? We're saying to them, hey, we are going to nominally trade the stock. You can actually front run us. We never go first. We always say, we'll let our members know first. But we're saying, buy this stock. And then we're going to add it to our scorecards if we'd made the trade. Or with our portfolio services, we're saying, hey, we're going to buy 2% of company X. You should do it. Then we'll buy it in a couple of days' time. Um, we're actually asking people to, to, to kind of follow our trades to, to some degree. The difference, as Doc rightly points out beautifully, is you want to be careful who you're following, why you're following them, what you know about them, what they're going to do. Um, there are plenty of investors who've been right, then right, then right, then right, then right, then spectacularly wrong and blown up their entire portfolios. And, you know, if you're if you're following the guy, and here's, here's my problem with doing it online, is you'll tend to, you'll tend to think about, think about your brain, right? Your brain's going to say, hey, that guy's been right. And he's right again today, he's right again tomorrow. The day after, you're going to follow him and think, right, he's finally right. And Doc and I get wrong a lot. So, you know, if you're following just our right, Rex, and then and then you kind of we, we get a couple right in a row and we get one wrong. Yeah, you know, if you're not if you're not if you're not following how and why we're doing it, to Doc's point, the, the strategy behind it, the theory behind it, the way we're doing it, um, our intent to keep doing it over time, I don't know, it feels like a recipe for disaster. Here's what I think will happen with this sort of service. I think you'll find there's people who do really, really well for a really long time. If you've copied Warren Buffett's trades since 1965, you've done really, really well. If you follow David Gardner's trades, I talked about him um, since 1993, Doc, 97, I think the full port was live. Anyway, 20 plus years, you would have done spectacularly well. Um, now, your question at the time would have been in 1993, does this guy seem like he's doing something right? Does it seem like it's, it's sustainable? Is it possible to keep doing it? Because again, uh, plenty of traders have gone absolutely spectacularly bust when the proverbial hits the proverbial. Um, and if you're just following it because they had a couple right in a row, it's kind of the equivalent of going to the casino, right? And and kind of going, right, red, there's been red, it's been red, it's been red, it's been red. I'll keep going red. And you finally go black, it's like, oh man, that sucked. I lost all my money. You know, I, I kind of thought red would keep going. So, you know, th th there's the old saying about if you had an you know, infinite number of monkeys with an infinite number of typewriters would eventually produce the combined works of Shakespeare. Um, you know, you're, you, there was, there'll be someone who on or otherwise will do really well forever, possibly. There'll be others who won't. And if you're just copying that, I don't know, Doc, I, it feels super dangerous to me. It feels like you're kind of asking for trouble psychologically because you the chance you're actually kind of following thoughtfully and, and carefully gets less and less with each passing day when you're kind of getting overexcited about the wins. It's, it almost feels like day trading to me in a, in a strange kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Especially, this is something I'd be careful, especially if I'm a new investor. You know, you don't, you, you, if you if you started in March, you're already very successful. So you, you are feeling really good about it, right? Uh -huh. um, and it, that can be, I mean, that's a, <laughs> exactly. that can be a psychological bias. I almost say that it's better for new investors to start off losing some. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's to give you more reality check, doesn't it? It just it just puts a little bit of you know the market can be really really humbling right yeah, I mean yeah. it it can it tells the best of the best that well you're not that good uh, <laughs> or you think you're that good so I think you know I just I just say you know be cautious being cautious is is very important and um, yeah, and and what we don't want people like you know investing is a it's basically like pay playing. A, a cricket match, but it's not a five-day, it's like a five-day match if when you're comparing it to, I guess, with the T20. But yeah, it's like, you know, exactly. you really have yeah. to bat it out and you have yeah. to bat out the entire session and you, you know, th then only can you win. So we you, we don't want you to get out. That um, is my analogy of the day, mate. I love that analogy of batting through the session. That's exactly, it's a marathon little sprint thing that we talk about all the time, but the cricket analogy yeah. is even even more useful. I love that. Yeah, I love well, that you know, we love cricket here, so. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and test test cricket is is the ultimate cricket in my opinion. So, man, did you see the result? Massive tangent. Have you seen the results last night? I haven't checked it this morning. The, the India, which, India India England you know, match. I'm not following it. You know why? Because those uh, those grounds are like dust balls, so they're like completely like it's a debacle. <laughs> How can you like? It's like playing as somebody put it. I think it is. I think the English captain or one of the former mm -hmm. English captains basically put it. It's like playing on. Uh, Chennai Beach. Like it's, like, <laughs> it's like basically you're playing professional cricket at the beach. 
Well, maybe we should call it the beach test match, and then that'll like be fine. Like you know? So oh. yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I'm not a fan of one-sided kind of games. Yeah, yeah, agreed. <laughs> I was watching. I wasn't even watching it last night. I was. I, I saw a tweet, and then I flicked on. I just literally googled the that you can Google the hashtag, and so I kind of followed the thing. And it was like seven for seventy-six at some point. The Poms were trying to trying to keep the English spinners out, and it was just the first two readings had gone for. 120 and 130 or something yeah. each. Like it was yeah. obviously a, bowl, a boulder's a boulder's pitch. Uh, and it was just, every time I refreshed the page, the wicket would fall. I was like, man. Anyway, massive tangent. Um, Doc, you speak, you spoke about Matt starting in 2020 and doing well and having some success. Um, Matt, I need you to, I need you to sit down. Uh, Matt, second question. I'm sure you're over the whole GameStop shenanigans. However, are you able to recommend a broker platform that allows short selling for ASX shares? Matt, Matt. <gasps> Come and come, come and have a sleep, man. We got, we got to talk. Um, oh. This is, this is kind of the flip side of the Etoro thing, right? This is, mm. I, I, so I get it, man. I, I get the idea. I get that you want to like, try it. I get, I, I really do understand the impulse, mate. I've been doing this for twenty plus years. I don't even go near shorting. Um, you know, Doc uses some options, but he's a super sophisticated investor who's been doing this a very long time. Knows exactly what he's doing. If Alice has never, ever, 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 ever shorted, I would be the happiest man in the world. If they're going to. Be, be like doctor 15 years before you even think about starting or find someone to follow um i know you want to do it i'm not I, i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna be uh, a bit arrogant here man. i'm gonna answer your question mate i'm sure there are platforms out there i'm not gonna look for them i'm just gonna say please for my sake for your sake for all of our sakes um do yourself a favor get rich slowly don't go broke fast and shorting is just a one-way ticket to, to losing a whole lot of money and i'll yeah. add one thing so i use options but you know what i've I've actually never shorted a stock. Oh, there you go. I didn't know that. I have never shorted a stock. <laughs> and and, the, and the, you know, the closest you can call the shorting, it's actually not shorting. I've sometimes gone long. Um, I've, I've basically got a hedge, which is basically a long put mm-hmm. uh, on an index. But that's not a short, really. That's basically a hedge. And, that's, I've done, and even that, I have, you know, when I used to hedge, what I've discovered is if I hedge 10 times, uh, you know, nine out of ten they're not useful. It's just exactly how you think it's 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 supposed to work out, right? Well, then you can argue that if nine out of ten times it's not going to work, then for that one time you're basically paying nine times. Um, instead, you can just save that money and just use it <laughs> when there's nice. a uh, downturn. So you know, shorting is really dangerous because um, you know you have infinite capital loss potential, right? I mean, that that is the real. Uh, uh, really good, mate. Like we, I've seen professional shorters again on Twitter. Not that that's the only place to get your information, but who have who are really smart, thoughtful, capable people who've been doing this for a long time are still losing money, and it's just like yeah. Matt. Seriously, there are, there are there are a million ways to get rich. Shorting is not going to be one of them for you, mate. Unless you're super super lucky and super super good. Um, please, just honestly, I get it. I know you want to. I know the GameStop thing is exciting. I get all that stuff. Just please leave it leave it alone. Um, you don't need to do it. As Doc said, the, the downside is unlimited. The upside is capped. That's a that's a crappy way to start trying to play this game. Um, there are, again, some people do it. Some people even do it successfully. Man, please stay stay away. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. Let's go to another another question. Another Matt, actually. I, I, I love the uh, guys, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you. I have two questions for the mailbag. Firstly, we have a lot of two double barrel questions, Doc. I like you. First, I'm an EO member. Nice. And I like Doc's investment ethos and stock picking analysis. Since I've joined, I've built up the recommended, recommended 20 to 25 stocks in my portfolio. Fantastic. That said, EO certainly has a tech theme woven into many of their stock recommendations. My question is this. If I only follow Doc's EO picks, will I be sufficiently diversified? Doc? Yeah, so like we have, yeah, so we have a, we have a tech feel to it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but we do have a company like say EML recommended mm-hmm. you know, a couple of times in the portfolio or in the, in, in our notional scorecard. Um, and, you know, you want to call it tech, sure. I can also call it payments. Yeah, I can yeah, right. call it uh, finance. <laughs> financial services. So we've got companies like that. We recently mm-hmm. made a recommendation. I'm not going to talk about it in detail, but it's, it's again in the tech space, but it is more med tech, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to call it, um, you know, uh, about medicine or do you want to call it about Exactly right. Yeah. fight in a different race? Yes, I agree. There is a huge, you know, but Kevin and I uh, like hunting in that space um, mm-hmm. and it gives us some really interesting ideas and opportunities. So we, we do go there. So to answer the diversification question, if 
we have an article that we put out, we, which is called you know, basically top 10 conviction, high conviction stocks in our, in our current set of recommendations, which are buys. Okay? Nice. And we do that every quarter. One of the things that we, we tell people there is how to use that. And in that 10, top 10 list, we never include the two ETFs that we have got recommended. So we have the, uh, the NASDAQ 100 ETF and we have the Asia ETF as well. I mean, what we tell members is that you could basically buy those two as, as a starting point and you're already right, pretty diversified, yeah. right? Yeah. And then layer on top of that EO. Uh, and then, you know, in my opinion, you'd be pretty diversified if you have, you know, got the right allocations and things like that. And that depends from individuals. individuals. But uh, the other thing you could do is you could subscribe to some of the other Motley Fool services. <laughs> <laughs> and this, is not, really, and this is not really an ad. <laughs> You know, for example, if you if you like uh, uh, tech retail, uh, <laughs> then <laughs> you can go to ShareAdvisor and you'll get some tech retail. Now you could then say that it's tech, you, yeah, you know, yeah. or Scott just said Temple Invest. And is it, you know, do I want to call it uh, a furniture company or do I want to call it a right, tech right. company? Um, or Scott has previously talked about, say, Colgate, you know, is it a tech company? If you asked uh, Russell and Cohen, I remember talking to Russell and Cohen first, and he said, you know, we look, our, look at ourselves, and I might be phrasing this incorrectly, so Russell, pardon me, but he'd say, like, you know, we look at ourselves as a data company, uh, which, you know, again, if you're a, if you retail in something, that the data is what the customers are buying and the buying habits and the buying behavior and what that tells you, and that's really important. So, um, yeah, but you know, uh, there are other things that the the fool has that you could consider um, if you if you if you think that the EO is not. I mean, the ask the fact that you're asking that question is really great because you're thinking about it, which is again fantastic. Which is what we want you to do. We want you to think about these things. I really like that, mate. I think, um, yeah. Look, I, 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 you know, I can't speak for your service. Well, I can give a view, but you're you're the expert. Um, I, I would. I think so. I've talked about diversification before, you know, I've talked about not specifically not having a Noah's Ark approach. You don't want two of everything. You know, you, to buy an index, you've got to be super diversified by an index. We want to have enough diversification that our portfolio isn't hung up on particular um, uh, impacts. Now, and when I say impacts, I do that deliberately rather than talk about sectors or, or stuff. Because I think if you think about the risks, and I'm going to speak this on the, uh, our Platinum meeting on, on Thursday, think about the risks that our businesses face. Um, two, three, four tech companies will not face anywhere near the same risks as each other, even though they're all considered tech, right? So um, a, a network routing company like Cisco, I know it's a really boring old one, but I'm using it because it's, it's really, really different versus Templar Webster. <laughs> you know, are they both tech companies? Yeah. Would people describe both as tech? Yeah. Are they even close to having the same impact or the same, you know, drivers, the same risks? No, absolutely not. And so I get that when we talk about tech and we do for a good reason. Um, but as I said, if, you, if you're pre-tech, we would have said, hey, my entire portfolio is in, in physical companies. You know, I'm not diversified enough. Um, and so tech these days is a, a an enabler, a path, a pathway. It is a um, uh, an efficiency driver, it's a business model generator, it's all these things. But very, very like if you've got five e-commerce companies, like having five banks, you're probably in trouble. So yeah, yeah, be, be diversified, but don't avoid tech just for the sake of avoiding tech. Though as Doc says, feel free to sign up to other services as well. Um, and speaking of which, Doc, let me let me do the ad because I can. Uh, because you made the you made the case, so let's let's do it. Um, the good news is Matt has joined you at EO, and if you want to join Matt and Doc and Kevin at Multiple Extreme Opportunities, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Uh, you get a really good deal to join Multiple Extreme Opportunities and. After you've done that, go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Enjoy Motley Fool Share Advisor, the service I run. That'll give you a good range of diversification. Um, more importantly, it, they're both really inexpensive and you will learn a truckload from both, right? Even if you don't end up choosing to invest down either strategy or, or you know, you, you choose to, to use one more than the other, um, in, <laughs> I'm super biased. I really am. The price that we charge is so incredibly low for the value that you get. In the education, even if you have a pick a stock, the education alone, you know, people will pay $1,000 for trading software and courses and God knows what for stupidly cheap prices together, let alone independently. Um, I think our services are well worth it. And by the way, we're still both beating the market after extended periods of time. And I think there's some value there as well. So EO podcast, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Come and join us. All right. Um, 
You know, Scott, I still can't oh. believe, you know, that, you know, Bruce Jackson keeps selling EO for less than, like, what? He's still, you know, sometimes less than 100 bucks. Like, I mean. Crazy cheap. Crazy. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. You know what? I completely agree with you, Doc. The, the only thing I will say is the good news for our, our potential members, our listeners, is we're actually, you know, selling investment newsletters is hard. And and we we shouldn't have to sell it for 80. If, if I should be able to walk down the street and say, hey, mm-hmm. I know this really, really smart guy. And he's been in the market by, last I checked, Doc, a margin of two to one. And um, I, <laughs> where, where else are you going to get that? And how, how much are you going to pay for that? What if I gave it to you for this price? Would you do it? I, I should have people knocking me over to say, please, 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 I'll give you whatever money you want. Tell me the secret. Tell me the name of this guy. Tell me the name, how, how I can get your service. And I'm not saying that about us necessarily. I mean, if other companies, other services had exactly the same track record and philosophy, I'd say that about them too. It's not about the Motley Fool. It's a reality that despite our best efforts, mate, we've got to really, really almost knock people over and drag them, drag them away to get them to buy our services and any investment services. Um, people buy, you know, like you, you buy panel for a pair of jeans that'll last you for six months. And, and it's like, I don't know, I'm, I'm ranting, mate, because it is my eternal frustration that I can't get more Australians interested. So if that's you, if you're hearing my frustration, please give us a go. Just, I think, not for our sake, do it for your sake. It's just stupid cheap. Anyway, um, Doc, there was a second question. Now, uh, we've, the, the Lake House... Uh, Lake House Capital is a motley full subsidiary. Uh, we as a business actually choose not to muddy the waters between those two companies. Other people do. Uh, we choose not to. We choose to simply say, you know what, we don't talk about them, they don't talk about us. Um, we don't discuss stocks with those guys. We have a, a complete separation of our businesses. I say that because Matt's second question talks about Lake House. Um, I'm not going to talk about Lake House. I worked with people. Uh, uh, there's a lot of people over there now. Uh, the CAO and and, uh, and one of the key portfolio managers I work with for a very long time here at the Motley Fool. They are spectacularly great guys. Um, love them to bits and like them a lot. So I'll say that, but I won't say anything more about Lake House for those reasons. We simply just choose not to talk about the funds business. They choose not to talk about our newsletter business. But that being said, and I want to give that context because Matt says his second question, I've heard you mention Lake House Global Growth Fund on the podcast before, and I've been thinking about the best way to gain exposure to international equities. Without providing personal advice, can you tell me how a fund like Lake House deals with foreign exchange? In order to purchase individual US equities through my broker, I need to transfer Australian dollars into US dollars. Whereas I presume a transaction with a fund exposed to global equities is made entirely in Australian dollars, at least from my end. Assuming the performance of both options are the same, it would be great if you could help me understand if I'm better off with one option or another in relation to foreign exchange costs. Many thanks, Matt. So look, we won't talk about Lake House. Um, I, I did it because I could have tried to reword the question without excluding Lake House, which is too hard. So I thought I'd give Matt the... Um, the honest answer and ask the question you asked so we can answer it. Um, but we won't talk about Lake House. Doc, um, investing in US dollars yourself versus your broker versus throwing some AUD at a fund manager to do the US dollar investing for you. Is there a difference? Do you care? Does it matter? Where, which would you go? Well, well, okay. So, like, I mean, it depends on how much you care. So, I would, this is my presumption. I don't know if this is true. But let's say I'm a fund manager and I'm managing, you know, let's say billion dollars or something like that. Uh, like let's say I have a billion dollars under funds under management in US dollars, right? And that came to me in Australian dollars at some point in time. I would assume that I would get um, good wholesale rates whenever the money is coming in and I'm able to, you know, probably keep some money in the US AUD, convert to USD when I need, and I probably am able to get uh, excellent, uh, you know, <laughs> with very little bid ask uh, friction in terms of uh, the exchange rate. If the exchange rate really matters some to someone that much, then probably that will be a low cost. That will be my guess. Again, I could be wrong. Um, then if you are doing it yourself, like it depends on how you're doing it, right? So if you use a, uh, I've used a company, an Australian company called Oz4X uh, for, uh, you know, changing AUD to USD. And they actually do a really good job again, we have not recommended this company. Any, I don't think it's an active recommendation anywhere in the Motley Fool. The only reason I'm saying good things about them is that they have excellent customer service and uh, they give you a good good deal. Uh, so that's it's not you know, find, huh? Which is not always easy to find. Well, it's just a good combination. It's really good yeah. combination. Right? Yeah. Good customer service, easy setup. You know, they verify the accounts before they said they'll call you to actually set up the account. Um, you know, and they, they, they are very competitive. I find them very competitive and, and that's great. And they have a good service. Uh, local service too, which is even, you know, again, you know, people rile about service not being local. Their service is actually local. Um, so, 
you can get competitive rates. The, you get the worst possible combo rates if you go via your bank. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's where you actually, Surely not. The, Surely not. yeah, the, you you know, you get probably the worst bid ask <laughs> spread. You'd probably get the rates of last <laughs> yesterday's rate <laughs> plus some percentage points. Uh, maybe you, your bank is great. I don't know, but I, my experience with bank <laughs> conversions has been pretty poor. Plus, you'd probably be whacked some uh, transfer fee uh, along the way either by the receiving bank and so on. So. Yeah. And then I guess the last thing to note is that if you have an international trading account, uh, it depends on where the international trading account. If the international trading account sits in Australia and is keeping your money in Australian dollars, then every time that you actually buy something, that the conversion happens, right? And again, it depends on what rates they're giving you. If they're making a lot of money in the bid-ask spreads and you know they're taking commission on that, then you're going to lose money. Right. But here's the other thing, though, last point, is all of this really, really matters. Like, I mean, you know, nobody's going to be able to pillage that much of bid-ask. Like, these <laughs> bid-ask games are, <laughs> they're small basis point games, you know. It'll be, you know, the worst case will be, what, 100 basis points, which is 1%. Yeah. I'm guessing again, but, you know, just take that as an average. Uh, if you're doing this frequently, that'll hurt some. Yeah. But if you're doing it infrequently, I don't know probably doesn't hurt, right? I mean, because over the long run, probably those things don't matter as much. So that's a long-winded answer. Again, depends. Context really matters, which is why I've tried to sort of explain sort of all the range. I must have missed some. Scott, you? No, I think that's right, Matt. I, I don't have much to add other than I would encourage you not to look at, Matt, the 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 actual... I, 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 would, I, I would humbly suggest you may be focusing on the wrong things. Uh, I think if you're going to a managed fund to avoid foreign exchange dramas, uh, I would I would suggest that's fine if you want to and need to and you decide that's simply just how you want to make your decision. But I would say that if you think you can beat the managed fund returns by investing yourself, not doing that to avoid a, a foreign exchange impost and a hassle is actually probably going to cost you money. Now, you might still decide that you just don't want the hassle. I get it, right? People use ETFs or managed funds because they don't want to do it themselves. Completely get it. So if you decide you don't want to do it yourself, that's a very different thing. But if you're genuinely saying, hey, I've got these two options. One's a bit of a pain. The other one's a bit less of a pain. Which one do I go with? I would say, you know what? A little bit of pain. It's like change, like shopping around for a better mortgage rate, right? Do I want to do it? No, I really don't want to do it. Is it worth it? Hell yes. It's probably worth tens of thousands of dollars over the life of a mortgage. And so it's one of those things where you know, I said, I get it. Um, if, if you just can't deal with the whole hassle and drama, then yeah, by all means, find a different solution. Uh, you asked us for our advice. So my advice would be go with the option you think is going to give you the highest long-term return. Doc's made the point many times. We talked about exchange rates on the last on um, Friday's podcast. And Doc made the point that if you think about the combination of those two, you know, a couple of percentage points on the exchange rate versus the potential for a four-bagger in the US, as you mentioned. Um, what's the company, Doc, do you remember? You mentioned on on Friday's podcast that four bags since March, US business. Oh yeah, it's Twilio. Twilio, there we go. Thank you. Twilio. Um, yes. You know, like you know, if I if I invested in a managed fund and got fifteen percent rather than rather than by US dollars and by Twilio, um, you know, or, or to my point, you know, I haven't I still haven't changed that money back in Australian dollars. Um, so you know that, that that question really is is a live one and a good one. And I think it's, it, you know, I would I would say if you can bear the hassle, if you're not doing it too frequently, as Doc says. Go with one that's going to give you the best, best return. Now, if the fund's going to give you a great return, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying choose on the basis of, like we would say, don't minimize your tax deduction, minimize your tax, maximize your after-tax return. I would say the same here. Don't minimize your costs, maximize your after-cost return. If that's a managed fund, spectacular. If that's doing it yourself, then that's that's great too. Fair? I think so. I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think, again, yeah, focus on the right, the, focusing on the right question is very important. I think that's, you know, focus on the right things, yeah. Very good. Let's go over a question from Jake, mate. Uh, gents, started listening recently and enjoying the podcast heaps. Thanks, Jake. I wanted to know what your ideal overseas portfolio weighting is. Lots of overseas questions, which I think is awesome, mate. You are you and I are, are massive fans of investing overseas, so I'm really excited to hear the question from, from Jake. He says, my job is in Australia, my house is here, and a chunk of my shares are. You're already getting it, Jake. I can sell. I'm starting to think I should focus exclusively on overseas shares to protect against an Australian downturn. Hypothetical portfolio value, he says, and I'll, let's say, uh, you know, uh, he says, um, oh, this is intriguing, okay. So he said, I've got half a million dollar equity in the house. He says $400,000 income, but he's, he's calculated that as an asset based on 
earning 100 grand per annum with a 25% cap rate, which I kind of like. I, I'm not going to get the, the, the weeds of that one, but it's an interesting way to think about the assets uh, of, your, of your, your personal portfolio by kind of capitalizing your income as an asset. That's quite cool. Um, 30,000 in Australian shares and 30,000 overseas shares, he says. Based on that, I have a 97% exposure to Australia. And it's, I like the way you kind of made income worth more in that context, mate, because it's, it does actually make the whole thing a bit real, doesn't it? That sounds high, he says, given how reliant we are on one sector, question mark, exclamation point, JJ. Uh, so what, uh, I, before oh. we go for, you have to explain to me how <laughs> this, this is complete bouncer for me. How does this 400K income relate to this 100K per annum and 25% cap rate? Do you, do you follow that? I don't follow it. Yeah, so, so what he's done, he's basically, look, right, so my assets, his assets currently, it's an equity in the house. He's got yeah. 30 grand of Australian shares, 30 grand of overseas shares, right? Yeah. So they're so hard assets. Yeah. But then what we've said before many times, and he's exactly right, we say, and by the way, your job is here. Yes. And so he's saying, well, the value of my job, I'm yeah. going to say 100 grand a year, and I'm going to capitalize that. In, in other words, turn it as an asset. My earning potential as an asset is worth 400 grand, saying I earn 100 grand a year. I'm using a 25% capitalization rate. Right, this, right. In real estate, well, you know, this, but in real estate, just for our listeners, what they do is they say they value real estate property not on what the market's going to pay in terms of dollars, but they'll mm. say, right, uh, you're taking you're taking rent of $100,000 a year for your commercial property. We're going to capitalize that at a rate, call it 7%, just to make my maths easy. And therefore, your your hundred thousand dollars worth of at rent means that property is worth one point four million. They simply say, right, seven percent. Right, right, right. Okay. So they calculate a value of the property based on the rent. What I love here is is JJ is actually he's obviously a, he's obviously a finance guy. I'm, I'm tipping because um, he's basically said uh, I, I earn hundred grand a year. I'm going to capitalize that at twenty five percent, which is a pretty conservative one, by the way. But I like it and say that you know my my income as an asset is now worth four hundred grand. Which is kind of cool. It's, right. kind of it's basically it's, it. it's looking at the long, uh, lifetime value of the income. Yeah, exactly. As, as, that's as, exactly as, right. There you yeah, go. Another way to put it: lifetime value. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, but at the but at the twenty five percent, he's only assuming that he's working for four years. So. <laughs> well, you got to just kind of anyway. So it's just a, it's a way of, of turning his income into a portfolio value to say, hey, if All I right. consider my life and say, right, I've got that as a portfolio value, including mm. my income potential. Uh, then I've, I'm 97 percent exposed to it. You're right, mate. It probably should be more than that. In which case, he'd be even more exposed to Australia. Mm. Um, so, what do you think, mate? I, like, the, I mean, you know, we, we obviously would say US or overseas, but he says I still think I should focus exclusively on overseas shares to protect against an Australian downturn. What do you reckon? Yeah. So I think see, a mixed. So it depends. Like a couple of things here. One that really matters is time horizon, right? Mm. So if you've got a relatively long time horizon, then you're not going to be buffeted by exchange rates, right? If you've got a relatively short time horizon after which you want to start drawing down uh, your funds, then uh, you're going to be buffeted by exchange rates. In which case, your uh, your math might differ. Mm. If if you've got a long time horizon, then diversifying. Overseas actually makes a lot of sense because it gives you some degree of exactly sort of the it, it gives you, I guess, uh, some protection from local economic um, uh, downturns and things like that, and protects yeah. you. You know, if the, if the dollar goes down, it sort of acts as a as a cushion. We talked a little bit about this yeah, on Friday's podcast. What is the right amount would really depend <laughs> on yeah. uh, on what. You know, you could say something like, you know, you could be ninety percent outside, and then, but then, you know, are you going to be happy with uh, the the short term volatility that you're going to get? So that's again an individual question. So it's I don't have a I have a I don't have an answer, but I think that's a good framework. I like the framework and I like the way this is being thought about. I don't have a really, specific. Really I don't have a specific answer, unfortunately, for Jake. Yeah. Ah, oh, look, I'm 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 super torn, right? And I think I think the answer you gave is the right one. We don't have a specific answer, but you think about it right. And you know what? If you ask the right questions, mate, the range of answers is probably going to be right. You know, like if you if you're asking as a general rule in investing in life, if you get the question right, there's a very good chance you get the answer kind of roughly right because you, you're approaching it the right way. I so here's what I would say, JJ. I think we, we've talked about, a lot about not being overexposed to Australia. And when when we do, we normally say, as you've rightly pointed out, ninety plus percent of people's exposure is Australia. That's probably too much. I think that's right. I, and you're absolutely right, part of the reason to look to overseas is to include things, not just your portfolio, but your job in your house. So those things are all true. I guess it, I, it, the last two questions in your, or the last two words in your question were Australian downturn. And I think that probably precludes, or sorry, um, suggests that you have 
a very significant view on that downturn that might or may not come. And you might need to decide about, for example, whether you might your job might be at risk. And if your job is at risk, maybe whether your house might be at risk mortgage-wise. And so think about all that kind of stuff as we go through because that probably helps to determine. I wouldn't, I would use those rationale as a reason to invest overseas, but not to invest exclusively overseas. There are reasons to invest in Australia. As Doc and I have said many times before, actually, rather than investing in either, just try and find the best ideas and invest wherever they are is probably the better idea. Um, for example, is, uh, uh, give me a good one, Doc. Um, up, 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 up. What's an Australian listed company with, with a lot of business overseas, not turned business overseas? Sure, this one. Oh, a lot of them, right? So uh, I, I can't think of any right now, which is weird. Let's go with uh, CSL for fun. Can we have CSL? CSL well, CSL, CSL, well, five. <laughs> like yeah, but you know, check ResMed, right? ResMed, there we go. All right. ResMed so, is an interesting example. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so let's say ResMed. You know, if you're investing in on the ASX, you can buy ResMed and actually have your your shares exposed to the overseas market, uh, overseas as in consumer market, not, not share market. And I think that's why I'd probably say, you know, against the Australian downturn, that's a bit of kind of just, it just sticks in my core a little bit because I want to make sure you're not thinking about volatility versus expected value. There'll be, there'll be downturns globally and locally over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Now, I don't know how old you are, Jake. I don't need to know. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to invest through another, how old am I? I'll say three downturns here. And probably three or four downturns globally, be my guess, right? Um, maybe it's not, maybe it's less than that. But in any case, if I was trying to avoid Australian downturns and I have to think about US downturns and then there's global downturns, none of us can escape. And do we eventually just go to cash and go to baked beans and go hide in a cave? No, you're not saying that. I'm being flippant. Uh, but generally speaking, I think I, I think you should invest overseas, absolutely. I think you should very reasonably invest at least half your assets overseas. Um, you are you have things like currency and timing and taxes to think about, so it's not an easy answer. So I think more is a really good answer. Exclusively overseas, I don't see any downside to it, but I wouldn't I wouldn't pursue it as its own aim. And frankly, the closer you get to retirement, when things like frank credits might be useful, depending on how your company's grow. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, Doc. Um, the hypothetical of you know what happens when growth companies become dividend payers. You, you were saying you're kind of hoping that some of your portfolio just will morph into again. I'll use the David Gardnerism because he was here this week uh, virtually only. Um, you know when the rule breaker becomes a rule maker and they start to become that you know the the the, the, um, the dominant player just gushing out a heap of cash like an Apple is right now, for example. Um, you know the Frank Grants might be useful to you at some point. So. Look, I think, yeah, we spent a long time on this question. Right question, right framework. Love the capitalization of income. Uh, more overseas is great. Exclusively, no, I wouldn't. I, I would I would step back and I think Doc's, you've been to this for a couple of months now, Doc, at least. Um, your general view of invest wherever the best idea is, be border agnostic, I think is a really good idea. And by the way, if you do that, you'll find that most of your money will go overseas, not because we suck, just because we're 2% of the world's markets. So mathematically, if nothing else, you should find, you know, at least four out of five US ideas are probably going to be overseas by definition. Um, now, some won't be, and that's cool. But if you invest just where the best ideas are, I think as long as the volatility itself doesn't cause you financial stress, not not emotional stress, but financial stress, like if there's an answer and you lose your job, um, then you might need to cash something in to pay some bills, and that's a different question. But generally speaking, I, I would say fish where the fish are. Don't, uh, don't, don't border yourself unnecessarily either way. Fair, Doc? Absolutely. Got one last question. Question, mate. This one's a really good one. It's one for beginners and experts alike. It is one that we confront all the time, and it's costs. Mark says, "Hi, Scott and Doc. I've been listening to your podcast for the last six months, murking my way through the back catalogue, as well as keeping up to date with your new episodes." Thanks, Michael. And boy, have you prevented me from making a whole bunch of mistakes. Nice, mate. We're glad. So I've joined Share Advisor. He says, and invested about sixty grand and seen a twenty percent return from a selection of SA picks and some index ETFs. Loving it so far. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Glad. One question I have though, I have a thousand bucks a month to invest, but my brokerage is $20 for ASX shares. Should I? And here's his options, Doc. A, invest monthly, which means paying 2% brokerage, but get money in the market each month. Or B, invest two grand every second month and get that pesky brokerage under to 1%. Or C, move to a cheaper brokerage. Is lower fees or more time in the market better? Is that decision dependent on what the market is doing even? What do you reckon? Thanks. Michael. Now, Doc, we get lots of questions, which is the A or B question. You know, do I mm. do it a little bit now or a lot later? I love the framework that he's added with C, which is do I move to a cheaper brokerage and solve the problem or, and or do I think about where the market is and how I might think about investing that cash? It's a really nice way to bundle up two or three questions in a single one. What would you mm -hmm. tell Michael? 
Well, I'll tell Michael is that it's always better to find a cheaper <laughs> brokerage. <laughs> so that, anyway, I, yeah, I, because, because I detest paying extra for <laughs> like basically a brokerage is a platform where you do you know clicking a few things and some electronic trades happen. Uh, I shouldn't have to pay twenty dollars for that. <laughs> so I have a philosophical issue with paying twenty dollars or more for that. Um, uh, so if I can avoid doing that, actually try to avoid doing that, if then I would absolutely do it. Yeah. Uh, that makes me feel good. Um, <laughs> more time in the market is better. So, but you know, a month here, a month there would not make a difference. Uh, I would absolutely, at least if I was, you know, this one I can give a definite answer. If I was doing this, I would actually bundle a bunch of money, and um, you know, build my positions. You know, even one could buy even every other month if that's sort of the scenario and, and reduce the brokerage. Um, unless, here's the unless, if you have a really compelling idea, uh, something you think yeah, is really no, compelling and you want to get into it, mm-hmm. I would then, you know, pay and just, mm-hmm. because I think the, the problem with, you know, you want to act when you feel like this is the thing you want to act on because in a month, a lot can happen and you can come back and you can forget about it. Your life moves on. You forget about this idea <laughs> that you had. So, yeah. you know, I would, I would weigh how I feel about an idea. And if I want to act on it, I'll act. Otherwise, I'll, I'll, bunch, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bundle money together and mm-hmm. invest. And frankly, I would just find a cheaper broker. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's just no reason. One go. Well, there's no reason to pay paying 20 bucks. Like, I mean, there are a bunch of Australian brokers who would enable you to get share buying and selling down for under $10, right? So mm. why not? I like it. Um, I, yeah, like I think, so yes, absolutely. If, if you can find a broker that's worth saving the money for, go with them. So I think as you said about Schwab, mate, good combination of, of price and, and service is also always important. And so if you can find a broker you're happy to switch to for a cheaper price with the same or, or, or an acceptable level of service, maybe with less service, but acceptable, go with that. That's 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 the no-brainer, right? That's just the get a better rate question. Um, always get a better rate where you can, uh, as long as you consider the terms and conditions and, the, and things like customer service and stuff. Um, so there's that. I am going to agree with you entirely, Doc, with one slight caveat, which is yeah. if you're a newer investor, I would almost suggest paying the extra brokerage in percentage terms, not 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 pay more brokerage than you have to, but in, when, you, when you've got the cheapest brokerage you can find, um, I would actually almost do it monthly to get into the market and get a, portfolio, a diversified portfolio built as quickly as possible. So I would say for the first year and a half, I would actually buy every month personally. And that would be because I want to then very quickly develop a diversified portfolio with lots of different companies. So you're not exposed to one individual company or one particular sector, or I guess, you know, if you bought three companies in six months and the market tanks or one sector tanks, you've only got three three companies, you're probably just a little bit more exposed if you had six. And this is not a financial answer. This is an emotional, psychological answer, which is about managing your own uh, your own emotions in if you get to a situation where a company or a sector tanks and you've got to have to try and deal with that, right? Um, we're seeing plenty of plenty of volatility all over the place. If, some, if you're someone who... And most people, I would say if you're someone who, I would say for most beginner investors, do yourself a favor, get to a large portfolio as quickly as possible. So I would say do it monthly for the first year and a half, swallow the brokerage, kind of go, man, that sucks, but it is what it is. And then once you get to a decent portfolio size of the number of companies, not even dollar size, number of companies, then I'd start to do what you said, Doc, wheel it back to once every two months or so, keep your brokerage as low as you can. Um, again, as I completely agree with you in terms of if you find a better idea, go go whenever it's there, you know, but don't don't wait if the, if the idea is compelling and, and in front of you. Um, but I, w- I would do it more quickly early just to give yourself a base platform to start from and then I would wheel it back and then focus on keeping that brokerage down. Is that, is that reasonable? I think it's very reasonable. I think, again, for all of these questions, right, there are a variety of answers. Yes, as always. So, yes. Yeah. It's a hard thing about our job, mate. Like, you know, there are people out there who sell certainty and man, it's much easier. If you're if you're in the sales game and you want to sell certainty, that is so much. You should do this no matter who you are because this is the right thing to do. People go, oh, okay, that sounds confident. We'll go with that. We say, oh, look, it depends and here's why. And for some people, they're like, oh, guys, like, you know, I'd rather go with someone who was absolutely certain. Um, all I would say is we're trying to give you the, the, the best possible advice we can in the circumstances and give you the options to consider rather than pretending we know the answer or there's only a single answer. And we deliver it with conviction so you feel like you should go and absolutely do it. Uh, I said, if we're in sales, uh, conviction wins. But uh, in advice, hopefully, uh, giving you a range of options that you can apply to your circumstances, hopefully, are the right thing to do. Doc, we're done. But I want to make sure our listeners know how they can get in touch with us. You can get in touch with Doc on Twitter, at Anirban Mahanti. 
You can also get in touch with me at TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. In fact, when I say you can, let me say you should. You should, you should join Twitter. You should follow those accounts because it's worth it. Uh, if you're on Instagram, Doc is not yet there, though I haven't given up hope. Uh, but I'm there at TMF Scott P. The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Can I say, Doc, as a quick tangent, it is remarkably hard to find pictures for finance um, to put on Instagram. My Instagram account, I, like, I, I don't really have that much to actually put on there because, you know, I'm not doing you know, fitness workouts and I'm not doing food and I'm not doing whatever else people post on Instagram. I don't, I, there's only so many spreadsheets you can take photos of put on Instagram. You just take photos of Bitcoin and you put a, <laughs> put, put a rocket and then on top of it put Bitcoin and then create a GIF out of it. And, and I'm sure your oh, follower count would go up. That's funny. It's that, like, let's, let's, assume that, let's assume that's true. Um, the, <laughs> so I'll do that next. If you're on Facebook, uh, Scott Phillips Money, as I acknowledged on Friday, I'm not important enough for Facebook to bother blocking me. But the good news is, as we record this, apparently news is back. Uh, and our account was reinstated a couple of days ago. So uh, Scott Phillips Money has always been there because Facebook doesn't care. And The Motley Fool Australia is now back in full living colour. So you can uh, go there as well. That wraps us up, mate. Before we do, please do subscribe to The Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or the brand new listener app, L-I-S-T-N-R. It replaces the podcast one up. If you've already got that one, you've now got Listener. If you haven't, check out Listener from our friends at Southern Cross Austereo. Um, we are doing it through their network and the Listener app is a great way to get us and others. And of course, if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating on any of those apps you can find. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. Write it in the sky. Don't write it on your body. Um, and of course, you can get a dose of Foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And you will get some marketing material from us as well, full disclosure. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. In the meantime, full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.